Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network, New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am honored and blessed to be in dialogue today with Dr. Ion Popa. He is Gerda Henkel Stiftung Scholar and Honorary Research Fellow at the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Manchester. We are here today to discuss his new book, The Romanian Orthodox Church in the Holocaust, published by Indiana University Press in 2017. It's an honor to be with you today. I'm really, really fortunate. Thank you so much for inviting me. To begin, uh, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life stimulated the scholar you would later become? Uh, I was born in Romania and grew up in a village in the Carpathian Mountains, uh, approximately 150 kilometers north of the capital, Bucharest. Uh, I lived my childhood under the regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. And for me, my parents uh, and most people in the village, those years were marked by poverty, lack of bread and other basic food, power cuts, and lack of freedom. I hated communism, and that experience made me value more ideas such as freedom of speech, respect for individual rights, or democracy. The 1990s, uh, after the fall of Ceausescu, were a period of uh, increased interest in religion. Uh, Evangelical churches almost doubled their membership in those years. I was interested in theology and philosophy at the time, uh, and I did my first degree at a faculty of neo-Protestant theology in Bucharest. However, I soon discovered that evangelical churches, as traditional Christian denominations too, are intolerant and pose a great threat to an open society when they try to impose their beliefs, uh, their beliefs on society. So I would say that my interest in church-state relations had two main sources. Uh, My own experience with communist totalitarianism on the one hand, and on the other, the increasing realization that the cocktail of religion and politics is incompatible uh, with democracy. For millennia, religions have been, as Pope Pius XI said in 1922, the true totalitarian regimes. Uh, Look what happens, for example, when churches try to impose their their view on abortion. Most of the anti-abortion agenda or discourse in countries such as the United States or Poland is pushed forward by Christian denominations, evangelical and or Catholic churches. In 2003-2007, I did a second BA degree at uh, the University of Constanza in Romania. And in 2007, I was accepted for an MA in religion and politics uh, at the University of Manchester. At the time, I knew something about the Holocaust, uh, but I did not plan on writing my MA dissertation, let alone doing a PhD and writing a book on that topic. And this is a testament to the superficial knowledge that was at the time in Romania about the Holocaust. 
Uh, I sometimes uh, say jokingly that I had to move to Manchester, Great Britain, in order to understand what the Yash pogrom was. Hmm. The Yash pogrom was one of the first large mass killings uh, of the Holocaust in Romania when around approximately 13,000 Jews were murdered. Uh, it was an accident or providence that led me to choose during my MA a course called The Holocaust in History, led by Dr. Jean-Marc Dreyfus. That was an eureka moment when I realized that my interest in religion and politics slash church-state relations can be channeled to studying how these topics manifested during the Holocaust. I did my MA and my PhD focusing on the role of the Romanian Orthodox Church in the Holocaust and its aftermath. And the book is a result of that. What does your book say about you as a person? What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope that readers will gain from it? Uh, when I um, did my MA course, uh, that uh, was that eureka moment, um, I thought about writing something about the church, the Romanian Orthodox Church and the Holocaust. Uh, and the first thing a researcher does when he has or she has such ideas is to look whether somebody else before did something about it. And I remember I was shocked um, to discover that although there was research about the role of the Romanian Orthodox Church in interwar political extremism, especially there was research about um, the links between the church and the Iron Guard, uh, which was one of the main extremist uh, movements, right-wing movements in interwar Romania. Although there was research on that aspect, nobody went further and nobody looked at how that relationship and um, the affinities between the Romanian Orthodox Church and the Iron Guard manifested during the Holocaust. So. What inspired me to write the book was this uh, desire to understand more, to look more at what happened not only before the war, before the Holocaust, but how the antisemitism of the church, which, which was evident in many respects before the war, uh, continued after. Um, on the other hand, I was living and we are still living in a society in Romania at least, but this is valid for other countries as well, where churches are becoming again, uh, more increasing, increasingly involved in society. Uh, in Romania for many years after the fall of communism, uh, the Romanian Orthodox Church placed first as the most trusted institution in the country. So to me it was shocking that although for many Romanians, the church was the most trusted institution. No one knew exactly what the church did during the war uh, and uh, what was its position towards the Jewish community, knowing that before um, the church had a history of uh, virulent antisemitism. Um, another aspect that inspired me to write the book uh, and what I hope the readers will gain from it is, uh, I, I do believe that institutions acknowledge their mistakes and learn from them only when they are confronted with their past. Um, institutions as people since Adam and Eve 
are not keen on acknowledging their mistakes by themselves. Uh, usually they surround themselves with excuses, uh, whitewash the past, use most smokescreen narratives in order to avoid responsibility. Uh, I am critical of churches because I think that only in this way they can become better institutions. Um, it depends also on who the readers are. Uh, if the readers are leadership of these churches, uh, I'm, I'm writing about, I hope that my writing will help them to evaluate their institution's actions in the past and shape better policies for the future. For example, the Jewish-Christian dialogue is still an inefficient in my, uh, in my view, because the involvement of churches in the murder of Jews is still not yet fully properly researched. We know a lot about the silence of churches, but we know very little about the active role in the interwar antisemitism. Churches were not responsible only for, uh, for a failure to save Jews, but for an active participation in the policy that, policies that led to the Holocaust. If the readers are fellow academics, I hope that my writing will open new avenues, avenues of research. Uh, as noted by some of my colleagues, I usually write history from a central or institutional point of view. I do believe that for topics that are under-researched, we need first a general understanding of what happened before going into local or micro-history details. I am happy that some historians, such as Jonas Biliuz or Philip Blassen, are already looking at more local, in-depth aspects about the involvement of churches in Romania during the Holocaust. If the readers are the general public, I hope that my writing will help them see the failures of the church, not in order to disturb the religion, that's not my purpose, but to make that church more accountable for its future policies and actions. What was the Romanian Orthodox Church's point of view on the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Soviet Union? How did this play into perceptions of Judeo-Bolshevism? Um, can you comment on the situation of Romanian Jews during World War I and after World War I being situated in between uh, the rise of communism and the Russian Revolution and the emergence of the Soviet Union and the local situation in Romania? Yeah, actually, um, I have an argument which I developed up after I wrote, I published a book. Uh, I, I'm writing on that argument actually now. And the argument is that during the interwar period, the vast majority of European churches pushed for um, rejection of secularism and a return in society. And one of the most um, useful, powerful vehicles they used in legitimating their return to society was anti-communism. So communism became for churches the best example of how degraded, how dangerous a society without God and without the church can become. This is why during the interwar period, not only the, the Romanian Orthodox Church, but churches across Europe pushed with some of the most ardent, uh, uh, strong supporters of anti-communism. Um, in Romania, 
the situation was even more exaggerated by something else. Uh, uh, in 1919, in Hungary, there was for a short period of time, a communist state um, whose leader was a Jewish individual, Bela Kun. What happened in Hungary with that short-lived communist state was that it kicked off an entire mythology about the collusion between Jews and communism. Uh, after the defeat of the Belakun state, and by the way, the Romanian army had a significant role, so they entered Hungary and they, they had a significant role in defeating Belakun and removing communists from Hungary. Um, uh, in the wake of Belakun's uh, fa failed, failed communist state, uh, the narrative for a long time uh, in Hungary and in Romania too was a total equivalence between Jews and communism. There was a general, an incredible generalization uh, and Jews, all Jews were seen as communists. Um, during this period, uh, there is a triad of uh, anti-communism, anti-Semitism and calls for a re-Christianization of society. Um, which is a very poisonous, um, very poisonous uh, cocktail, which directly affected the Jews. Um, this narrative continued before and during the Holocaust. Uh, just to give you an example, in uh, 1942, so we are during the war, during the, the one of the most uh, murderous phases of the Holocaust in Romania in April 1942. In an article published in the main journal of the Romanian Orthodox Church, Teodor Popescu, who was a professor of Orthodox theology, claimed that Bolshevism was proved to be full of Satanism and demonism. Speaking about the Bolshevik persecutions in Russia, he called the communists atheist beasts with a demonic face. And towards the end of the article, he clearly identified Jews as the main creators and supporters of Bolshevism. And I quote, communism has at its basis the Jews, permanent adversaries of Christianity, ideologists and promoters of all main anti-Christian doctrines. Nietzsche especially awake the beast in 19th century man. Karl Marx armed him with socialist philosophical theories and set on against God and the church. And Russian, com uh, Russian communism, instigated by Judaism, organized it in the atheist state, its goal to finish once and for all with religion and the church. How does your book advance our knowledge of the Holocaust and Holocaust memory? The book um, uh, brings knowledge about um, the way in which the, the, the Orthodox Church behaved um, uh, after, after the Holocaust, the way in which it tried to um, whitewash uh, its behavior, to use what I call smokescreen narratives, uh, mainly positive examples which derailed attention from the many negative compromising actions 
uh, in which many uh, Orthodox clergy were involved during the during the war. Um, when it comes to the Holocaust in general, I think the book is bringing new evidence about a process which is not that much yet is not that much yet evidenced in in the case of other churches a process of whitewashing the past um i mean we know about the bulgarian orthodox church uh, what we know is generally a very positive narrative in which in 1943 indeed the bulgarian orthodox church not alone together with other significant political players in Bulgaria at the time, including the king, protested deportation of Jews from Bulgaria. And that protest was successful. And the vast majority of Jews living in proper Bulgaria, not in territories that were annexed by Bulgaria, they were saved. Uh, the same narrative about the Greek Orthodox Church um, when um, several books and articles are highlighting again the 1943-44 interventions of several Greek Orthodox clergy in favor of, uh, of Jews uh, or against protesting deportation of Jews. But in both the Greek and the Bulgarian cases, what is missing is knowledge about how these churches behaved before 1943. It was easy to protest in 1943, especially after the Battle of Stalingrad was lost, and the knowledge that Germany might win, might lose the war was um, was there, uh, then it was to to do that before. Uh, so I think the book would hopefully. Um, open new ground for researchers to look at the behavior of various European churches before 1943-1944. Because we need to have a broader understanding of how the behavior of churches evolved during a larger period, a larger period of time, a larger time frame. Uh, we need to look at how these churches promoted or did not promote anti-Semitism before the war, their relation to the Jewish community and to anti-Semitic policies, including legislation um, before the Second World War and during the Second World War. I mean, we know, for example, that in Hungary, uh, both Catholic and Protestant churches were very much involved in anti-Semitic legislation. The churches both Catholic and Protestant being consulted at all the steps of the creation of the first, second, and third anti-Jewish laws in 38, 39, and 41. Um, uh, so the case of Romania, which is highlighted in my book, and the case of Hungary, which has been highlighted in, in, in other books by other authors, Paul Hannebrink or Moshe Herzl, shows that the involvement of churches in anti-Semitic uh, policies, legislation, discourse was uh, very profound. And we need to have this larger framework in mind when we analyze this, uh, this behavior. What was the situation of Romania's Jews 
during the interwar years. Can you tell us about the social and political status of Jews in Romania in between World War I and World War II during the 1920s and 1930s? Yes, uh, this is a very interesting uh, story in itself. Uh, I hope our listeners know that Romania's territory almost doubled after the First World War. Uh, new territories from the Austria-Hungary Empire, Russian Empire, and from Bulgaria were added to Romania, including large territories in Transylvania, which includes Banat, Krishana, Maramures, uh, Bukovina, also Basarabia, which today uh, is more or less uh, the state of Moldova. Uh, all these territories were added to Romania um, in 1918-1919, and these territories had significant Jewish population. Uh, At the end of the 19th century, the Jewish population in the Old Kingdom of Romania was approximately 300,000. Uh, With the new increases in territories after the First World War, this population increased to approximately 756,000. And what is even more interesting is that the Jewish population in Southern Romania was mostly Sephardic Jews, most of them coming from, uh, from Southern Europe, from Greece, from Turkey, Italy, um, but the Jews in the in the Moldova side of the Old Kingdom and many Jews, uh, I mean the, the vast majority of Jews in the, the other territory, Basarabia, Bukovina, uh, Transylvania, Transylvania, they were Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, there were different traditions. Um, um, and different levels of uh, acculturation. Of course, these people who were just added to the territory of Romania, they didn't speak Romanian. They couldn't. They just, before 1919, they were in other contexts. They spoke, some of them spoke Hungarian or German or Russian, uh, Yiddish. Um, so during the interwar period, we have a large majority of the Jewish population trying to integrate into the this kind of new state in which by by the force of the political context they just found themselves in um and uh, in terms of eco- economy uh, finance culture they of course they contributed to many aspects of jewish life and romanian life uh, contrary to the narrative at the time, which saw Jews as very rich, powerful, and so on. And indeed, there were some Jews rich and powerful in Romania, but the vast majority, they were people uh, living in small villages, as, as we know from many places in Eastern Europe, uh, living day by day, uh, in uh, sometimes in very difficult, dire situations. And if you read the documents very carefully, you see that situation, especially in Bessarabia, sometimes in Bukovina, of Jews suffering the same level of poverty as the rest of the of the population. Um, and that of your response um, to the previous question, I was curious, can you say a bit more 
about the differences between Ashkenazi and Sephardi experiences in Romania, in early 20th century Romania's history, um, especially during the Holocaust, and in what ways did Sephardi Jews suffer differently from Ashkenazi Jews? What are the similarities and differences? Yes, um, there was a difference, but I, I would I would be very careful in my answer because sometimes this difference might be exaggerated. Mm -hmm. uh, it is true that because the Sephardi Jews, they lived in Romania for a longer period of time, they were more integrated in Romanian society. They lived there for sometimes for hundreds of years. Uh, they spoke Romanian, they um, had better connections in the Romanian state, and so on. Um, and it is true that uh, in the first phase of the Holocaust, they were spared deportation. Not necessarily because they were Sephardic. Uh, I don't think that specific religious aspect played any role. It was just because in the Romanian authorities' perception, they were better Romanians. They were more integrated. But I, I would be very careful because that was only temporary. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in, um, in the summer of 1942, so indeed, in the first phase of the Holocaust in Romania, mostly Jews from Bessarabia, Bukovina, uh, Transylvania, Northern Transylvania was not in Romania, so we're not talking about it now. Um, so Bessarabia, Bukovina, and parts of Moldova, most of these Jews were Ashkenazi. Uh, they were deported or murdered in pogroms and mass killings. And uh, um, But in the summer of 1942, initially, Ion Antonescu, the leader of Romania and the Romanian authorities, uh, agreed to the German plans to deport the remaining approximately 270,000 Jews to Belzec's uh, uh, death camp in occupied Poland. Um, and they even drew plans as details as train schedules for these Jews to be moved to Belzec's. It was only in October 1942 when Ion Antonescu realized he was very close to the situation of the war and he realized that Germany is struggling at Stalingrad and might not win at Stalingrad and might not win the war. So when he realized that, he postponed the deportations and in eventually he canceled them after the loss of the Battle of Stalingrad. So indeed, there is a difference in the sense that for a short period of time, the Jews in Southern Romania in the Old Kingdom of Romania were, were spared deportations or treated better. Um, but, I mean, they were not treated better, uh, but they were not killed. They were not murdered and they were not deported. They suffered too, in the sense that there, there was Jewish slave labor during this time. They were excluded from various professions. They could not go to schools as they went before. Um, but indeed, until summer of 1942, they were, in, in this sense, better protected. What does your book teach us about silence? Yeah. Um, by standardness, 
being a bystander is um it's a very contested concept now and um and i am in full agreement with this uh, contestation in the sense that even in silence uh someone makes an active stand you can't i mean silence doesn't mean full passivity and even full passivity by by being passive you do something um so but my book is not is is not even about bystanderness uh, it's not about silence because my book is showing that the church was not silent uh, and actually i i think we need more research to show that churches were not silent um it is about the church is it is not about the church doing nothing but about the church doing so much to incite hatred uh, they did it before the holocaust uh the number of articles, the number of um, speeches, the involvement of clergy in the Iron Guard, all these speak about active involvement in anti-Semitic, uh, virulent anti-Semitic uh, uh, propaganda activities. Uh, and when we go to the period of the Holocaust itself, uh, the church was active in so many instances. I mean, after the war, uh, there were at least 12 priests tried for active involvement in the murder, killing of Jews. In addition to these 12, there were many others, hundreds, uh, tried for their links to the Iron Guard. Uh, it is true that the communist trial, in, in these cases, they do not specify uh, the way in which this involvement in the Iron Guard also led to anti-Semitism and violence against Jews. But we know that in many situations, that was the case. People involved in the Iron Guard were, were also, in the vast majority of, of situations, involved in violent acts against, against the Jews. But also the church was actively involved in the hatred against Jews during the Holocaust by its uh articles in religious press i i gave one example um from an article published in 1942 uh, but there were others especially in places where tens of thousands of jews were being killed i found articles in the journals of the orthodox church in bessarabia or bukovina or transnistria articles expressing joy that the jews had been killed um and the church was also actively involved in um, in the in the murder of Jews by its uh, activity in Transnistria and by uh, supporting legitimating the war against the Soviet Union as a holy war of Christianity against uh, Bolshevik atheism. Um, so the book is not about silence. Uh, it's more about the active participation in the in the in the in the Holocaust. And when it is about, let's say, silence, this old concept of being a bystander, actually that silence goes hand in hand with the 
uh, active participation. For example, uh, the Patriarch of the Orthodox Church and many uh, high-ranking clergy and the Holy Synod of the Church um, regularly refused calls coming from Jews or from converted Jews sometimes or from the Jewish community to help. This would fall into the category of silence or bystanderness, but they were not silent out of the blue. They were silent because they had an entire history of active participation in antisemitism. What was the relationship between Ayan Antonescu and the Romanian Orthodox Church? Um, for the writing of my book, um, I did not deal too much with this question. Uh, but after I finished the book, uh, my kind of research led me to, to a better understanding of the role played by the church in general uh, and by Patriarch Miron Christia. He was the first Patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church in Romanian politics. Uh, I hope our listeners know that Miron Christia, he became patriarch in 1925. In 1927, he became regent. He was uh, part of the three members regency um, until 1930. And uh, in 1938, he became prime minister of Romania. So we have the head of the main Christian church in the country, becoming prime minister of the country, of Romania, from February 1938 until his passing in March 1939. Um, what is not that well known is that Patriarch Christia increased his political career via uh, a uh, less known uh, organization called the Anti-Revisionist League. Uh, the League was led, so the president of the League was Stelian Popescu. Stelian Popescu was one of the most powerful media moguls in Romania at the time. He was the owner, the editor-in-chief of the newspaper Universul, which was the most circulated daily Romanian newspapers of that, uh, of that era. Uh, so they developed the Anti-Revisionist League in 1933-34. Stelian uh, Popescu was the president and Miron Christa was the honorary president. Um, but also Johan Antonescu was very close to at least Stelian Popescu. My research, I guess, would lead me in the future to, to discover closer links, hopefully, probably, between uh, Antonescu and Miron Christa too. What is true is also the fact that the Goga-Kuza governments, uh, so the, the Goga-Kuza government of 1937-38, uh, they were in power for about two months. Um, and this is the kind of the prelude to the uh, Carol II, so the royal regime, personal regime which was installed in February 1938. Ion um, Antonescu was part of that Kuza, Kuga, uh, Goga Kuza government. Um, 
he was uh, he became minister of defense and he remained minister of defense for at least a month and a half under Miron Krista. So Miron Krista was prime minister and Antonescu um, decided to resign uh, when Cornelius Zelacodreanu, the head of the Iron Guard, was arrested in March 1938. So that was his protest against the, the arrest of Codreanu. So on one hand, what I want to say here is that there are some uh, deeper links between Ion Antonescu and the political side of the Orthodox Church, probably via the, the Anti-Revisionist League, or the, the common relation between Miron Krista and Stelian Popescu. They, they seem to circle around the same group of people. Um, this is important because one of my arguments is that Christia is one of the essential players in setting up the policies that would lead to the Holocaust later on. And I guess Antonescu was part of this circle. He borrowed some of this idea and implemented them further. For example, one of the policies implemented by, uh, by Ion Antonescu and led to the, the death of hundreds of thousands of Jews was deportation. But one of the first major proponents of deportation of Jews from Romania was Miron Christa, the patriarch. Also, Miron Christa was one of the first, first to propose, uh, not only to propose, but to, um, to create legislation for Romanianization, which meant mostly the elimination of Jews from various uh, professions or from the economy. Um, and later, Ion Antonescu would take this policy further. Um, at the same time, it is also true that during the war, initially, Ion Antonescu works hand in hand with the church. Uh, but, but later, especially after 1942, uh, it's pretty visible a kind of a tension between you know Ioan Antonescu and some members of the hierarchy of the church. This is an aspect which I did not, I, I, I have not yet carefully examined. I wouldn't, I wouldn't venture to say why that was the case. Uh, but I just want to mention it uh, and the fact that that would need uh, definitely would need further attention. Where do you situate your book among current and previous research and scholarship? on the Holocaust in Romania. The book adds to historiography of the Holocaust in Romania, this specificity is, is looking at the institution that is has been overlooked before uh, for various reasons. Uh, and um, and uh, in doing so, it opens new avenues for other researchers to look more carefully at uh, other churches in Romania or in Europe too. Uh, I mean, as I said, uh, I'm really glad that there are already several historians um, doing a great job at um, uh, providing more in-depth knowledge either about the Romanian Orthodox Church or about the Catholic uh, Catholic Church in Romania. But I think we need research on other churches in Romania. 
I mean, we had also significant Protestant communities, significant evangelical communities, which uh, they were, many of them were persecuted uh, during the war. Uh, but we don't know, I mean, we know a little bit about that, but we don't know the relation to the Jewish community, for example. How does your book advance our understanding of Orthodox Christianity in the 20th century, especially the early 20th century? Um, the book shows something that was, for various reasons, um, overlooked before. I mentioned the Greek and the Bulgarian Orthodox cases. Um, most of the time, the narrative of, about the behavior of Orthodox churches during the Holocaust is positive. Uh, but I dare to say that those narratives are, are incomplete. Uh, so my book, but it is not the only one. Before me, there was another, he, he published initially an article, but then he published uh, a book too. Uh, I'm talking about Jovan Byford, who wrote about uh, a Serbian bishop, Nikolai Velimirovic. And his book, like my book, showed on one hand that someone who was even canonized by the, the by the Serbian Orthodox Church. So, so he, he is very much revered. He was very anti-Semitic. Um, and the process of whitewashing his past is in a sense similar to what happened in Romania. So my book and the book of Byford shows that the narratives about Orthodox Church's positive behavior uh, might be incomplete, and uh, I, I venture to say that, uh, and I think there are researchers already looking at the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, and I think in the near future more research would come to light, showing that indeed, so the fact that these churches did something positive in 1943 is great, uh, but but we need to know what they did before and what they did after and whether they were influential in any way in anti-Semitic legislations in these countries. Because in Romania, as in other parts of Europe, churches were heavily involved in, in, in uh, anti-Semitic uh, po uh, policies. Um, but it also shows something else. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm not doing that in the book itself. I, I do it more uh, in several articles I published after the book. Um, during the interwar period, period, there was a fervent ecumenical activity, especially the Anglican Church was, uh, was keen in developing relations with Orthodox churches. Um, and one of the churches that received the most attention was the Romanian Orthodox Church. So there was a kind of very uh, rich ecumenical activities, especially in the 1930s, where there was an Anglican-Romanian Orthodox conference in Bucharest in 1935. In 1936, the patriarch Miron Christa uh, is invited to London. He, he is received by uh, the king, by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and by many political religious elite. Um, but 
this ecumenical activity is problematic in a sense because knowledge about, especially about Christa's antisemitism, started to emerge. And the way in which churches, either we are talking about the Anglican church or other churches involved in bilateral relations, because at the time, Orthodox churches in the region, they were involved in that type of um, activities. Um, so my book is an invitation to research more carefully. Uh, I, I did that for the case of Romania, but I think we need uh, to look more carefully at, um, uh, to pay more attention to uh, the way in which ecumenical activities were used or not to protest anti-Semitism or to encourage anti-Semitism. Can you tell us about Chief Rabbi Safran? Why was he important? What were her what were what were his relationships like with the Romanian Orthodox Church, with Ion Antonescu, and what role did he play in the Holocaust and in broader Romanian history and Romanian Jewish history? Yeah, Chief Rabbi Alexandru Shafran, um, he was um, born in Bakou. This is uh, in, the, in the, the old kingdom of Romania in Moldova side. Uh, and uh, he did his doctorate, his PhD in, in philosophy at Vienna University. He finished in 1933. And he became... He, uh, he became chief rabbi of Romania in 1940. He was only... 30 years old. He was one of the, if not the youngest chief rabbi uh, at the time. Um, uh, and so he became chief rabbi in 1940 and he was forced to leave Romania in uh, uh, at the end of 1947 when communism kind of became more powerful uh, and um, uh, replaced uh, almost all all older um, leaderships, not only in the Jewish community, but also the Romanian Orthodox Church had another patriarch in 1948. The Catholic Church was also, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was, the, the con concordat with the Vatican was dissolved in 1948 and the Greek Catholic Church was disbanded entirely. So that period, 1947-48, is a period where communism took full power in Romania. So, so he was chief rabbi of Romania for uh, seven years. Uh, and that was the most critical period of the Holocaust. Um, and when it comes to the Holocaust itself, um, he is praised. I mean, uh, most historians agree that he was one of the the most powerful voices, protesting deportations, protesting uh, anti-Semitic policies. He uh, went to, not only to Ioan Antonescu, but to various personalities from the Red Cross to the Papal Nuncio to various embassies. He addressed whoever he could in, in order to, to try to avoid uh, some of these uh, hardships. Um, and he was helped in these uh, efforts by Wilhelm Fildermann, who was the president of the Federation or the Union of the Jewish Communities at the time 
Although the Romanian state tried to create another institution, Centrala Evreilor, the Jewish Center in 1942, uh, which was supposed to act as the main institution of the Jewish community. In fact, Wilhelm Filderman continued to be the, the most prominent voice of the Jewish community. And the two, so both the two, Shafran and Filderman, they worked together. So they complemented each other. They collaborated very well. Now, when it comes to the relations with the Romanian Orthodox Church and with other churches, Shafran is pretty open. I mean, he published this memoir, uh, Resisting the Storm, but he also has another book uh, called uh, Juif et Chrétien. Uh, it's published, as far as I know, only in French, uh, where he also brings a lot of... Um, uh, personal biographical um, memories. Uh, and I think in that second book, he is also talking about his connections, relations with various religious figures. Um, I mentioned the book that he is very, uh, he praises a lot uh, the Metropolitan of, or Archbishop of Transylva Transylvania, Nikolai Balan. Uh, who uh, Shafran credits, I mean, he claims that Balan had a great contribution in the stopping of deportation of Jews to Belzec in the summer of 1942. As I argue in the book, I think in that case, uh, Chief Rabbi Shafran is a bit uh, over-enthusiastic. Uh, of course, I, I, I think that indeed Balan spoke with Ion Antonescu and he told Antonescu that it, it would be better not to deport the Jews. But I don't believe that Balan had the was the contributing factor to that decision. That decision to postpone and eventually cancel deportations to Belgets was to um, down to a multitude of so many factors, including a significant role played by, by the Vatican in that uh, decision. Uh, so he is praising uh, um, uh, Metropolitan Nikolai Balan of Transylvania. I think he also praises briefly uh, Tizi Medrea, the Metropolitan of Bukovina. But he is very critical, uh, both in Resisting the Storm and in Juifa Chrétien. He is very critical about Patriarch Nicodin. Uh, and he is rightly uh, critical, not only, he's not only criticizing the lack of response from Nicodim. So Shafran mentioned several occasions when he approached Nicodim in order to intervene and he didn't intervene, but also he is critical of the way in which after the war, uh, Nicodim uh, via several articles published in uh, 1945, tried to portray himself as a savior of Jews. Uh, and, uh, and Shafran was not happy about that. Uh, but Shafran is very um, positive about uh, Papal Nuncio Andrea Casulo, uh, but also critical about um, another, uh, another Catholic leader in this case, uh, the Archbishop of uh, the Roman Catholic Church in Bucharest, Alexandru Cisar. So I think when it comes to his view of, 
Christian and Jewish-Christian relations and his own relations with various Christian leaders, um, he, he is mostly right in the way in which he portrays some of these religious leaders. In light of your response, could you kindly share with us more about Metropolitan Nikolai Balan of Transylvania? Why is he a notable figure? Can you share with us more information about his biography and his role in Romania's history? Yes. Um, Nikolai Balan was the metropolitan of uh, Transylvania. Uh, and after the Holocaust, the Romanian church tried to use what I call a smokescreen historiography, which emphasized some positive aspects and entirely concealed, whitewashed the negative ones. And in this positive, glorious narrative about how good and how careful, helpful the Romanian Orthodox Church was, there were two main kind of voices that were used, uh, image, personalities that were used. One was Patiar Nicodin, uh, and the second one was uh, Metropolitan Balan. In the case of Balan, um, his um, 1942 discussions, discussion with Ion Antonescu is mentioned often, and is mentioned by Chief Rabbi Alexandru Shafran as well. Another moment which is often uh, uh, mentioned is um, the, the April 1941, just for the sake of the context, in 18th of March 1941, the Romanian state decided to ban conversion of Jews to any religions. Um, the Catholic Church protested and the Catholic Church actually uh, retain the right to convert for another year. The Romanian Orthodox Church initially did, did not have a reaction as an institution. That reaction came only in June 1941, so about four months later. The first to react was the Metropolitan Balan of Transylvania. And this, the fact that he wrote protesting the ban of conversion conversions is used to showcase his kind of uh, intervention in favor of Jews. Uh, and I read about this, uh, I, so I, I read about this narrative uh, in several secondary writings. And imagine my surprise when I discovered the entire letter he wrote. I think he wrote the letter, he directed it to the Ministry of Religions in Romania. Imagine my... Uh, Great surprise when I discovered the entire letter, not only brief paragraphs, when I discovered the entire letter at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And actually in that letter, Palan specifically says, um, yes, we, we, we protest the mingling of the state in the affairs of the church. It is not right for the state to tell us who we can convert and uh, who we are not allowed to convert. But actually towards the end of the letter, he is very keen in saying that he is not at all trying to defend the Jews. 
Uh, what he is writing uh, is writing just for the sake of church independence. And he even boasts with this idea that the church in Transylvania, where he was uh, the leader, has been always at the forefront of Romanian nationalism. So that church, uh, uh, sorry, that uh, letter actually makes clear that the intervention was not at all in, in favor of, uh, of uh, the Jews. Moreover, uh, it's well known, and we even have pictures of uh, Metropolitan Balan being very close to the Iron Guard. He participated at Iron Guard events. He blessed Iron Guard martyrs. Um, and he was close to very controversial personalities uh, like Nikifor Krynik and, and some others. Um, so yes, Balan uh, might have said something, might have discussed with Ion Antonescu the deportation of Jews uh, to Belgets in summer of 1942, uh, but that positive intervention should not detract, should not derail from the fact that in many other instances, he was anti-Semitic, close to the Iron Guard, and some of his uh, policies and uh, attitudes uh, were problematic. Can you comment on the following passage in your book? Um, it's on page 57. Um, you write the following, as far as conversion is concerned, the Orthodox Church was much more of a bystander compared with the efforts made by other denominations in Romania, and especially the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church sustained a strong campaign of conversion during the Holocaust in Romania, including in the capital city of Bucharest, and in most cases, Jews converted to Catholicism were saved because the Romanian authorities feared the international influence of the Vatican. The Jews converted to other faiths were most often deported. Sometimes the conversion, because it was a violation of the law, was in itself a reason to be deported. Can you explain further? Can you elaborate on what you are alluding to in this passage? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad that in the last decade, more research is coming to light about conversion to Christianity as an avenue. Many Jews use this as an avenue to either escape various forms of persecution or, in many cases, to avoid deportation and death. Um, and that was the case in Romania too. And the churches understood that allowing conversion would be a form of helping these people. And the state understood that allowing churches to continue conversion would create some difficulties because all of a sudden your policies would affect not only the Jews, but would affect the churches to which these Jews converted. And we see this problem in Hungary as well. I mean, in Hungary, uh, most of the debate about uh, deportation of Jews and uh, churches' interventions uh, 
is around the failure of the churches to protest the deportation of the Jewish population, but they protested the deportation of converted Jews. So they were so much focused on their own converts that often they forgot about the other Jews who are victims of uh, an abominable an abominable crime. Um, so the state understood, the churches understood. So the, the topic of conversions during the Holocaust is crucial in Romania. Uh, the fact that the Catholic Church resisted pressures in 1941 and 1942 to stop conversions, uh, and they resisted this threat in the summer of 1942, under so they were threatened with imprisonment. So if you don't stop conversion conversions, you might face imprisonment. Um, I think, and I, I mentioned this in my second book, uh, I'm, I'm planning to publish um, soon. Uh, I'm debating this aspect at great length uh, because I think it's one of the very significant aspects of the Holocaust in Romania, the way in which the Catholics resisted and continued to convert, uh, convert uh, Jewish people. Um, I, I'm not... I have to be careful. I'm not uh, in any way um, making just judgment about the conversion itself. It's not my job. My job is just to say that the church kept the doors open and that many Jews, not as many as I expected, but many Jews chose to walk through that door. Um, but the differences are very significant. I mean, I for many years, I tried to find how many Jews converted, uh, especially after the ban, because the March 1941 ban is a decisive moment. So for many years, I tried to find uh, how many, and I researched various archives, materials, and so on. And uh, in the end, I, I, I think I found some figures for the whole Romania. And it seems that after the ban, uh, approximately 2,000 Jews converted. The vast majority are to Roman Catholicism, about, I think, 1,500. Uh, I don't have the figures with me now. Uh, uh, another great number uh, is to Greek Catholicism. Um, and there are others converted to Lutheranism, Calvinism, even to some evangelical churches even to Islam, some, but only 44 to the Orthodox Church in a, in a context in which the Orthodox Church had 72% of the population. So they had a great majority in Romania and still the Orthodox Church was far, far behind in offering conversion as an avenue. And I think this tells us a lot about, about the attitude of the church towards Jews at that time. Another question that I'd like to ask you about is if you could comment on the plight of Roma in Romania during the Holocaust. In particular, you have a passage on page 178 I would be curious to share with you and ask for your elaboration. 
uh, you write as follows. In all the churches, central and regional journals, research covering a large period of time, 1938 to 2012, and hundreds of issues. This was the only mention of Romas in the context of the Holocaust. Although anti-Semitism often, was often promoted before and during the war, there was no anti-Roma discourse in such journals. The cover-up campaign of 1945 and its subsequent communist and post-communist embodiments were entirely focused on Jews without any mention of Romas. Even in articles promoting the tolerance propaganda about the permanent positive behavior of the Romanian Orthodox Church toward other minorities, Romas are non-existent. Can you clarify what you are alluding to in this passage? Although our discussion and your book focuses largely on the Romanian Orthodox Church and the Holocaust vis-a-vis -vis Jews, I would be grateful if you could share something about the fate of Roma and Sinti, attitudes towards the Roma and Sinti within the Orthodox Church uh, during the Holocaust, leading up to the Holocaust and after, in light of this passage? Yes. Um, first, I, I would very briefly, and I hope that my figures are still accurate. I know that in the last few years, there is a big drive, especially in Romania, to research more carefully this topic. I have a, a few colleagues and friends who are looking at the fate of Roma during the Holocaust, and I think they are doing a, a, a great job, and the um, uh, new findings would, would come to light. But uh, my figures uh, are that approximately 25,000 Roma from Romania were deported to Transnistria. Um, the persecution of Roma uh, led to the death of um, the numbers are disputed. Uh, probably up to 15, maybe 20,000 of, of them. But they were not targeted in the same way. So it, it although many people were murdered, uh, there is a, a significant difference in the way in which Jews were targeted and Roma were targeted. Um, what I didn't say in the book, I didn't elaborate at all on that. Uh, Although I think it's an important factor. I, I'm alluding to it a little bit, but I didn't mention it specifically, but I can mention it here in the interview. Uh, in Romania, Roma population were slaves for hundreds of years. And the Romanian Orthodox Church was, uh, didn't, didn't have any problem to be one of the, mm, the biggest beneficiary of Roma slave labor. It's, it's well known uh, that uh, up to the middle of the 19th century, um, many Roma worked on the vast domains of, uh, of the church, not only for the church, but they also worked as slave labor laborers for. And my sense, uh, especially that, so there are in my research for uh, the, the Romanian Orthodox Church and the Holocaust, I only found those two mentions, which I, which you, uh, which you mentioned in that quote, uh, which are debates um, after the fall of communism in the Holy Synod of the Romanian Orthodox Church, 
And even in those discussions, which are mostly about eight uh, for various people. Uh, so in these discussions of the Holy Synod, about eight, uh, in these two instances, that there is mentioned that, yes, the church would help Roma Holocaust survivors. And even in those mentions, there is a kind of a condescendence a condescending tone um, uh, saying that uh, we want to show, so the Orthodox Church wants to show that the church doesn't make any distinction between people. The implied message being that uh, we know that Roma are different and so on, but we don't want to make any difference towards them. Um, but it's also true that there is no anti-Roma discourse in this, I mean, not only in the same way in which you have an anti-Jewish discourse in interwar and wartime religious press. The, I, I didn't find any. It might be, uh, from the start, I, I looked mostly for documents about anti-Semitism. Um, but in my research, I, I didn't come across uh, such examples. If they are, I hope that my colleagues who are working now, they might reveal them. And then if, if such examples of Romanian Orthodox Church anti-Roma discourse in the interwar and wartime period exist, uh, that would change some of these uh, conclusions. Another passage I'd like to draw your attention to is on page 52. You write the following. Um, another problematic aspect related to the attitude of the Romanian Orthodox Church during the Holocaust is represented by the religious missionary campaign in Transnistria. Its main scope was the re-Christianization of a territory scene in orthodox imaginary as cursed and tainted by atheistic communism this was done via public gatherings where priests re-educated the population about christian values and through baptism including rebaptism of adults this campaign was backed by some of the most representative figures of the church such as metropolitan balan of transylvania and several bishops in the summer of 1941 a missionary administration was created and you lose Scriban, a well-known professor at the Faculty of Theology in Bucharest, was named the head of the missionary campaign. Can you elaborate on what you're alluding to in this passage? Yes, um, and I, I, I would like to do it uh, by en enlarging a little bit the context, because I think, and I okay. think in the book itself, I'm doing it too. I link the missionary campaign in Transnistria to the military campaign against the Soviet Union. Uh, so for the, for the sake of clarification here, Transnistria was a large territory in today's south, southern Ukraine. It was probably as large as the state of Moldova today. So it was a, a pretty large, significant territory. Odessa, the current city of Odessa in Ukraine, was under Romanian administration, the capital of Transnistria, 
during the war from August 1941 until uh, spring 1944. Um, now, when the Romanian German armies invaded the Soviet Union, you have we ha we have two uh, areas in which the church becomes involved. Mm -hmm. One is the chaplains. We should not forget that often at the head of the Romanian army invading, there was a priest with the cross. Because in the narrative of the church, the war against the Soviet Union was a holy war for the defense of Christianity against atheism. And this idea of a holy crusade, a holy war, was promoted centrally by the church administration, but also locally, wherever the, the, the army went, by the military chaplains. And in the book, I bring several examples of military chaplains being the kind of the forefront legitimators, ideologues of this narrative. You are fighting a holy war. It wasn't just a war against another state. It was a, a, a war for the survival of Christianity. Um, so that's one side. The other side is the missionary campaign in Transnistria, because when the uh, territory of Transnistria was annexed by Romania in, uh, in August 1941, um, of course, the church wanted to be very much involved in that territory. Uh, and from the beginning, it was the same narrative. This territory was seen as unclean, as um, defiled by Bolshevism. Um, and the missionary campaign from the from the from the start uh, was focused on re-Christianizing. Um, and this re-Christianization of the territory went hand in hand with complete, uh, I wouldn't say complete silence. We mentioned silence before. It, it isn't complete silence, but in a sense, let's let's say it's silence because uh, uh, Jean Ansel, one of the foremost historians of the Holocaust in Romania, is right to point out, and he has a very beautiful passage where he talks about he calls the schizophrenic attitude of the church, who was able to renovate churches and to hold processions in the same places where tens of thousands of people were murdered. Sometimes he says only meters away. Um, so the missionary campaign was, uh, uh, the Orthodox missionary campaign in Transnistria was very problematic through this complete lack of interest in helping tens of thousands of people who were dying. Not only that, Julius Kiban, who was the first head of the mission, uh, pretty soon uh, a narrative developed in Bucharest that he is not anti-Semitic enough. Some allege that he even helped some Jews in Transnistria. We don't know. I mean, I didn't find during my research enough evidence to support that. But, but the campaign not only did not help, but 
was keen on shouting anyone who was trying to help in any way. And Scriban, who was seen as probably more helpful to the Jews, was replaced. In 1942, he was replaced with Visarion Puyu, who became the second head of the Romanian Orthodox mission uh, in Transnistria, um, because he was very well, a very well-known anti-Semite. Um, so yes, uh, that, that's really problematic. Uh, I, I should say here just briefly that the Romanian Orthodox Church was not the only one to open a missionary campaign in Transnistria. The Catholics did try for a long time. They were not approved, but in the end they were approved to open a missionary campaign too. But there were other, other churches active in the region also. Uh, most of the time, unfortunately, their focus was on baptisms, re-Christianization, uh, and not on helping uh, helping the Jews. Can I ask you about the Romanian Orthodox Patriarch Nicodem? What role did he play during the Holocaust? Can you describe his biography and his legacy? Yeah, Nicodem was a Romanian Orthodox cleric. Uh, he became patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church after the death of Miron Christa. So he is the second patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church. The church was elevated to the rank of patriarchate in 1925. The first patriarch was Christa. So when Christa died in March 1939, uh, three, month, three months later in June, Nicodem was elected. Um, there is a custom in Romania, uh, and the custom says that the Metropolitan of Moldova becomes the next patriarch. So basically, uh, and the, the custom is usually followed. So basically, if you want to know who the next patriarch of the Romanian Orthodox Church is, you should look who the Metropolitan of Moldova is. Um, and Although we know that Nicodem became patriarch in 1939, several historians noted that we don't know how, I mean, the context in which he became Metropolitan of Moldova in 1936. That's veiled in a bit of maybe secrecy or maybe lack of research. Uh, pr probably someone would, uh, would, uh, would look into that more carefully in the future. Uh, he was patriarch from 1939 until 1948. So he was the leader of the Romanian Orthodox Church during the most critical period of the Holocaust on one hand, but also of immediate post-war years when the smokescreen whitewashing historiography was created. Um, he continued uh, policies of uh, Jews exclusion. Uh, for example, soon after becoming patriarch, he and the Holy Synod decided to continue a policy adopted first in March 1938, which banned Jews who could not prove their Romanian citizenship from conversion to Christian Orthodoxy. This was a racial policy extended to an ecclesiastical one. He was a fervent anti-communist, and saw Jews as the main promoters of communism. One of the most problematic declarations during the Holocaust was uttered by Nicodem himself in April 1942, 
in a context in which hundreds of thousands of Jews were already killed or being killed uh, in um, Romania and Transnistria. And uh, I quote now, he said, so in April 1942, but while sitting near us, the Bolshevik dragon spread poison upon us from outside the country. And inside, he found wretched souls who became his mercenaries. Let us praise God that these Satan's soldiers were found mostly among the sons of the foreigners, the ones that called upon themselves, upon their children, the curse, since they hung on the cross, the Son of God, the Redeemer of our souls. So in such a moment when tens of thousands of, of Jews were being killed, he is attacking them directly using both kind of anti-Judeo-Bolshevik propaganda, but also old anti-Semitic Christian myths, such as the one that they are cursed because they killed Jesus on the cross. Now, he did in, indeed um, intervened in late 1942. He sent, uh, he forwarded actually, letters sent to him by Jews converted to Orthodox Christianity. From this point of view, those people were members of his church. So he didn't do too much, but still it's significant. And I want to mention it that in, in late 1942, he forwarded some of these letters to other authorities in the Romanian uh, in the Romanian state, but that's that's very little, and it's nothing compared to the actions of Papal Nuncio, Andrea Casulo, or other players in the Queen Mother or the Red Cross and various embassies in the country who did much more. Uh, in order to, to help the Jewish community when Chief Rabbi Shafran or Wilhelm Hilderman asked for it. And even more problematic to me, to my mind, is the fact that although knowing his anti-Semitism and um, this type of speeches he made during the war, he still uh, accepted to be used in this smokeskin historiography, which portrayed him as uh, as being helpful uh, to the Jewish community. And he, unfortunately, uh, passed away in very controversial circumstances. There are historians suggesting that he was poisoned uh, because he didn't get along with the communist authorities. Uh, in this aspect, he at least was sincere. So his anti-communism, which was visible before the war and during the war, he didn't conceal it after the war. So he didn't get along with the communist authorities, which wanted to replace, he, replace him. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, uh, I guess he was, um, he was um, taking, taken out of the picture to make room for the next patriarch, Justinian, who was more aligned to the communist uh, interests. Can you comment on the articles by Antimnika and Theodore Monolace? What do they say? Why do they matter? Yes, um, I, I, I think one of the 
the most surprising discoveries for me when I did my research was to see, to, to, to unveil these specific articles. They were not the only ones. So 1945 was a year where there were several um, articles published, kind of prepare, preparing the ground for these two articles. But, but they, these two articles by Antimnika and Theodor Manolake, they are um, kind of the climax of that 1945 campaign. Now, I want to say something about the context of these articles. Mm-hmm. As I said, uh, from early on, Nicodim struggled to get along with uh, communist authorities. Uh, so on the one hand, the articles tried to portray him as someone who saved Jews during the Holocaust. That would have helped him to have a bet- better position in his relations to the communist authorities. But at the same time, 1945 is a year when communism is not yet, is not controlling yet, does not have yet the full power in the country. And news circulated at that time that uh, in case uh, a regency would be needed or something like that, Nicodim would be like Patriarch Miron Christa had been before, uh, Nicodim might be one of the members of such a regency. And again, the, the articles were meant to promote Nicodim. It is not by chance that both articles they they mention, they, they try to portray Nicodim as, uh, as someone who helped help Jews. So there was there was a political immediate, there was an immediate political interest in those articles. But at the same time, there is a larger context. And the larger context is that many members of the hierarchy of the church were so much involved in interwar, political extremism. Many of them linked to the Iron Guard, um, anti-Semitism, and other very controversial, anti-communism, very controversial actions that the article should be understood in um, in a context in which many in the hierarchy of the church wanted the past to be whitewashed, wanted the, the controversial negative aspects to be sidelined under a, what I call the smoke, smoke screen historiography. I want to say that the, the Romanian Orthodox Church is is probably no exception. I mean, many churches and many institutions use this type of narratives to emphasize some aspects to the detriment of others. Glorious narratives to the detriment of problematic, controversial, compromising uh, aspects. Um, So, and that was done by the Catholic Church too, for example, which emphasize so much in the immediate post-war years, the fact that she, the Catholic Church, the Catholics were victims of persecution as well. Uh, And this victimhood narrative was used to 
deflect attention from the fact that, yes, in many cases they were victims, but in other cases they were perpetrators of atrocities against Jews as well. Or they stood by, they didn't do anything to, to help. Um, so the articles in 1945 are the first stage of this process in which an institution, in this case the church, is trying to create uh, an incomplete narrative, which emphasizing, emphasizes only glorious positive aspects while completely hi uh, hiding, compromising actions, episodes. Um, and uh, this actually, this narrative became very powerful because for decades, this smokeskin historiography worked. Nobody, I mean, everyone who wanted to know something about the church and the Holocaust read the articles by Manolake and uh, Antimnika. And by the way, these articles were actually um, more or less reprinted later, including in 1990. So in 1990, uh, another ch church journal published articles with exactly the same arguments. Exactly the same arguments. Why? Because in the in 1990, there was again a need to deflect attention and to portray the church as a savior of Jews. Uh, later, Patriarch Teoktist, so the Patriarch at the time in 2004, he used the same narrative with, in, in that case, I think, uh, quite a few examples from these articles. In a speech he gave, uh, uh, I think at the Israeli embassy in in Bucharest at the time. Uh, no, actually it was at the Patriarchate, the Israeli embassy granted one of the Orthodox priests the Righteous Among Nations medal, and the ceremony took place at the Romanian Orthodox Patriarchate uh, location. And in that speech, the Octist 2004, use the same narrative we have since 1945. So those two articles set up in motion an entire um, an entire glorious historiography about the help, the alleged help the Orthodox Church gave to the Jews. I mean, to me, so. It was really surprising because when I discovered these articles, it was immediately after I discovered a lot of the other compromising aspects. I discovered the speech by Patriarch Nicodim, where he calls the Jews Satan's soldiers, uh, and and a lot of other such examples. Uh, and. I knew about Patriarch Miron Krista, who was prime minister of Romania and who was a virulent anti-Semite and who uh, implemented the uh, deposing Jews of Romanian citizenship and created, legitimated a lot of anti-Semitic policies. And to me, it was shocking that knowing all that, knowing how many compromising episodes where in the recent history of the Romanian Orthodox Church's relationship with Jews, all of a sudden, in 1945, these two articles 
completely reinvented history and presented the period of the Holocaust as a fantastic era where the church actually did a lot to help the Jews. Uh, I mean, in some cases, indeed, the church, not the church as an institution, but some members of the high hierarchy or clergy intervened. And in my book, I mentioned several such cases, but, but from these small cases, which by the way, are much smaller than in other countries, uh, from these small cases to invent an entire historiography about how good the Orthodox Church was towards the Jews during the Holocaust was a complete shock to me. Can you tell us about Visarion Puyu? Who was he and what is his significance? Yeah, Visarion Puyu was um, first a metropolitan of Bukovina. Bukovina, including North Bukovina, which now is in Ukraine. Um, Bukovina was part of Romania during the interwar period. And uh, he became Metropolitan Archbishop of Bukovina in 1935. And um, he pretty soon he became known for his antisemitism. He started already in 1936 implementing some very strange policies, which later would be implemented by the Romanian state of Romanianization. So according to these policies, for example, uh, you could not employ on the estates of the church in Bukovina, uh, anyone else who was not, you could not employ someone who was not an ethnic Romanian. So that was a, a kind of a very peculiar policy uh, or, or you couldn't do business with someone who was not Romanian. That, that was a direct attack against some Jewish-owned businesses in Bukovina. Um, so um, for this and other reasons, he, he seems to have been a quarrelsome person. Um, he entered conflicts with a lot of people. Uh, he had a kind of conflict filled with um, uh, with the Metropolitan of Transylvania, Nikolai Balan, for territorial purposes. Um, and he actually, uh, Karol II, already started proceedings to remove him from the Metropolitanate of Bukovina, I think in 38, already 39. Um, but the, the removal was sanctioned in 1940 when part of that territory was already lost to the Soviet Union. Um, and then uh, Puyu, Isayon Puyu, was um, was retired for uh, about two years, uh, and then he became Metropolitan of Transnistria. And um, in Transnistria, although I didn't find direct evidence of explicit anti-Semitism during his, I mean, his explicit anti-Semitism during his tenure as a metropolitan. It is also true that uh, he, I mean, he, he had no problem to use Jewish uh, la labor, slave labor force uh, for the renovation of various church buildings in that uh, territory. Um, and he was, completely silent to the killing of many people in that, uh, in that uh, 
Metropolitanat. Um, in 1944, in August 1944, he, because he realized that if the Soviets are coming, he might be in trouble. He was the metropolitan of a territory that was the next by Romania from the Soviet Union. So, um, so he left Romania, left, left Romania, uh, moved to Germany, and he was for a short time close in Germany to the circus of the Iron Guard in that, uh, so the, the Iron Guard leadership in, who was in, removed from Romania in 1941 and they were kept in, in Germany. Um, and he remained in, in exile, so he never returned to Romania. He was condemned to death. He is one of the few I think there are some others. I think when I wrote the book, I thought he was the only one metropolitan, orthodox metropolitan to be uh, to be condemned to death in absentia. But I think there might be some others, high ranking clergy who in Eastern Europe were, um, were condemned to, to death in absentia as well. Uh, so he was condemned to death in absentia in 1947. But what is interesting about his case, and I, I mentioned this in the book, but I have another article about him, is that the communist authorities, uh, uh, they tried to convince him to return to Romania uh, and to pardon him uh, later in 1949, 48, 50. And that was because um, he became a bishop of the Romanian Orthodox Church in Western Europe. And the communist authorities wanted kind of to control him or to bring him back to Romania in order to put someone closer to the regime in that place. Can you comment on the situation of the Romanian Orthodox Church under communism? What was its social and political circumstance under communism? And how were its attitudes towards the Holocaust and Holocaust memory different under communism? Yes. Um, first of all, I want to say that in Western mentality, and not necessarily in historiography, although in historiography too, for a long period, uh, I, th I thought this myth was pretty uh, preeminent that um, churches were entirely banned in communist countries. That, that was not the case in Romania. And research shows that even in Soviet Union, uh, that was not the case. Uh, there is a large complicity of churches with communist regimes, which is now more evidence in the Soviet Union but it's also evidenced even more in the case of Romania. Uh, so on the one hand, I want just to emphasize that churches continued to work in Romania during the entire period of communism. People continued to go to church during the entire period of communism. There was no specific ban. Later, there was a pressure uh, for members of the Communist Party not to go to religious services. But especially in rural, in the countryside, uh, many people attended church regularly. Um, so that's one aspect. 
that's not to detract from the to um, derail from the fact that uh, churches are persecuted. I mean, in the in the case of the Orthodox Church, definitely in 1947, there is a replacement of the old leadership with a new one, more aligned to the interests of the regime. Uh, that alignment sometimes was even forced through uh, other methods. For example, people who did who misbehaved during the war. And by the way, Antim Nika, uh, who would later become um, important in Orthodox circles, he, he was the vice head of the Romanian Orthodox mission in Transnistria during the war. Also, it seems that uh, Teoctist, Patriarch Teoctist, who would become Patriarch in 1986, and he would be patriarch in the last years of the communist the Ceausescu era and for a long period, uh, I think until 2007. Uh, uh, Teoctist also had a very controversial past uh, in the sense that some documents um, suggest that he was an active member, so a member of the Iron Guard and he even participated in the pogrom in Bucharest. Uh, and these people were uh, more easily blackmailed. Uh, so for the communist regime, it was interesting either to replace the old guard or to bring in people who, because they had a controversial past, they could not um, they could not go out of the communist interest line. Uh, so. Um, Definitely the, the church was persecuted during the communist regime, especially Ceausescu had a strange policy, policy in late 1970s and 1980s to destroy Orthodox churches in Bucharest and because he wanted to make space for his megalomaniac uh, buildings. Um, but religious life continued in Romania on the one hand. On the other hand, Already since the 1950s, the church started to be used uh, in, um, uh, in the building of national communism. Uh, and it continued, so that process started in 1950s. Um, for example, the canonization of several Orthodox saints was used in the 1950s as a way of highlighting Romanian nationalism to the detriment of a more Soviet-based one. This policy continued even more during Ceausescu. Ceausescu had the policy of departure from the Soviet Union and kind of enforcement of a more national type of communism. Um, and he used the, the Orthodox Church in this endeavor too. And I mentioned the book, the 1967 moment, uh, when he goes to uh, Romanian Orthodox monastery, where the head of one of the most famous Romanian medieval rulers, uh, Michael the Brave, was buried. Uh, but actually, that religious ceremony was also showing the links between the old links between the church and 
the rulers of Romania. Um, so my argument is that uh, the church, although many suffered during the communist period, it was also used by the state and actually, during, especially during Ceausescu, uh, the Ceausescu's later years, um, the old interwar type of Romanian nationalism, which linked Orthodox Christianity with what it means to be a Romanian, with Romanian identity, the same narrative was resurrected by uh, by Ceausescu in uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years of his uh, of his uh, of his reign. It's not by chance that. Immediately after the fall of Ceausescu, you have a significant raise of nationalism, uh, which is rooted in Romanian Orthodox uh, church history dogma. Speaking of Ceausescu, can you comment on his attitude towards the Holocaust and Holocaust memory? What was his perspective vis-a-vis -vis the Jewish community of Romania, the Romanian Orthodox Church and the State of Israel. I bring this up in light of Ceausescu's role in facilitating Aliyah from Israel to Romania, and also his attempts to mediate in Israeli-Arab negotiations. I'm curious what the connection, if any, is between Ceausescu's policy toward the State of Israel and his attitudes towards local Jewish communities, the Holocaust and Holocaust memory, and the Romanian Orthodox Church might have been. Uh, Ceausescu was, was giving on, on one hand, but taking on another hand. Um, he continued the policy of letting Jews uh, immigrate to Israel if they wanted. That policy didn't, did not start with Ceausescu. Actually, the first big waves of immigration of Jews to Israel took place before he took power. He became secretary of the Communist Party in Romania. So he, he became the head of the Communist Party in 1965. And the two biggest waves of immigration took place in 1948-51, the first one, and then in the late 50s, the second one. But he continued, I mean, during his reign, uh, I estimate in my book that every year between one to 3,000 Jews were allowed to leave the country, but he did not do it um, out of charity. No, he did it for economic commercial purposes. Uh, I mean, Initially, but this system of barter was not invented by him. This process started before, where Israel gave the Romanian state some, I don't know, economic, financial support in exchange for letting Jews leave the country. But he continued this process and he even I mean, took it to a level where Jews had to pay, or Israel had to pay uh, foreign currency, because the Romanian state at one moment needed foreign currency, foreign currency in order to leave Romania. Um, what is interesting is his relations to Israel, because his relations to Israel became, so initially it was 
he was the only leader in the Eastern Bloc to side with Israel after the Six Days War in 1967. Uh, and not only that, he refused the Soviet Union call to brand Israel an aggressor, an aggressor state, but he, he refused that, but also he elevated the rank of relations from that of a consulate to an embassy immediately after 1967. And he continued to be close to Israel and to participate um, in the Israeli-Arab peace process. This is mentioned in several documents. I bring them in my book. Um, this, on the one hand, had some positive effects on the Jewish community of Romania because being in talks, in dialogue with Israel also meant that he had to open some avenues for the Jewish community in Romania. This is the context in which Jews in Romania were allowed some form of freedom to practice religion, to study in some Jewish schools, to have a theater, later to have a museum of Jewish history. But when it comes to the Holocaust, definitely he, he did not uh, accept at all any discussion about any type of Romanian involvement in the Holocaust. I mean, in 1978, in the context in which the movie, the series, the Holocaust became famous in the United States and Western Europe, probably anticipating that the series would be discussed in Romania too. Um, he, I mean, he not necessarily, I, I don't know if there was a specific order from Ceausescu, but that same year in 1978, the two historians from Romania published a book about the pogrom of Yash in which any Romanian involvement in that pogrom was denied and the number of victims was also uh, minimized. Uh, and he continued, I mean, yes, he was open to, uh, to allow some freedom to the Jewish community, as I said, in several cultural, social aspects. But when it comes to the Holocaust, uh, definitely was not... Um, willing to allow any departure from the narrative that Romania did not have any involvement. Uh, what he was happy to do, uh, and uh, but he, he, uh, he is not, I mean, the first one, uh, Romania, after the war, was happy to allow research, historiography, about what the Hungarians did, uh, especially in Northern Transylvania, because that would kind of boast the Romanians to the detriment of the Hungarians who look what they did to the Jews. Can you comment on the Elie Wiesel Commission? What did its final report convey and how did the Romanian Orthodox Church respond? The Elie Wiesel Commission um, was formed in 2003 in a context in which Romania was making efforts to join NATO and the European Union. And in that context, some Romanian high-ranking officials, including the Minister of Culture at the time, and also the President of Romania, Ion Iliescu, made some very scandalous declarations 
scandalous declarations, um, either denying the Holocaust altogether or minimizing the denying the Holocaust in Romania or minimizing the number of victims. Um, so in this context, Israel was outraged as, as there were many historians uh, and Israel threatened to uh, recall its ambassador from Romania in protest to such declarations. Um, and uh, in 2003, uh, fortunately, I would say, uh, Ion Iliescu, who was president at the time, he accepted the creation of a commission to study the Holocaust in Romania. And I have an article where I uh, discuss more this commission. And my argument is that the way in which the commission was structured, uh, I think in total there were like four, 40 uh, people involved in the commission. Um, most of them historians, but also representatives of the Jewish community from Romania, from abroad. Um, and uh, because they were representative of so many areas of academic, uh, but also history writing, but also Jewish community, um, the findings of that commission were more easily accepted. And in 2004, uh, the commission issued the final report about the Holocaust in Romania, uh, which was and still is uh, one of the, uh, the best uh, general descriptions of what happened during the Holocaust in Romania. It's, uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's more than 400 pages long. So it's very detailed and it shows the anti-Semitism before the war, the complicity of many political actors, what happened with the Iron Guard, the period of the Holocaust. It's a very, uh, it was a very good, uh, very good report. Now, the Orthodox Church did not respond to that because uh, I, I think I alluded to that before. Um, the church was not that much under investigation in the, in the report knowledge about the, the behavior, the controversial actions about uh, the way in which it behaved during the, the war was not there at that time. Uh, Patriarch uh, Miron Christe is mentioned in a few occasions in the report, very critically and rightly so. But apart from Christa, the report is not, is not dealing too much with, uh, with the church. So the church just buried it, left it. Uh, it didn't even even mention it. Uh, mention it. What it did, I don't know if this is a coincidence. I, I think the event itself took place before the final report was released. But I, it was in 2004 when Patriarch Teoktist had that speech at the Patriarchate uh, in the presence of the Israeli ambassador to Romania, uh, claiming that the Romanian Orthodox Church had, had had a positive attitude towards the Jewish community, help, helping them during the, the Holocaust. So it was 
it was he used a lot of the small stream narrative which had been there since 1945. But uh, there was no, uh, as far as I know, there was no direct response to the final report. Uh, as we bring our conversation today to a close, what are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now as your subsequent research? In the last few years, I worked on a second book uh, tentatively titled Only a Few Good Men, The Vatican, the Catholic Church in Romania and the Holocaust. The book passed the first review stage and I hope will appear in the next two years. Um, at the moment, I have a Gerda Henkel Stiftung scholarship and um, I am an honorary research fellow at the Center for Jewish Studies, uh, University of Manchester. My Gerda Henkel project is titled The Holy War, the Church's Counter-Secularism and the Destruction of European Jews. Um, the main argument of the project, which I develop in several articles and maybe a future book, is that Christian denominations were essential perpetrators of the Holocaust. Throughout the entire period of the interwar, out of a desire to reverse secularism, churches became heavily involved in politics um, and were the main promoters of anti-communism and anti-Semitism. They supported extremist political parties and sometimes directly participated in, in active politics and legislation against Jews. In Germany, for example, the Center Party, which gave the last two chancellors before Hitler, was led by a Catholic prelate, Ludwig Kass. In Hungary, churches were consulted for all three anti-Jewish legislative laws of 1938, 1939, and 1941. And in Romania, the head of the main church became prime minister of the country in February 1938. And he was prime minister until his passing on 6 March 1939. During his premiership, he created, legitimated, and implemented a series of anti-Semitic laws uh, that would be essential for the Holocaust, such as stripping of citizenship, deportation of Jews, or policies of Romanianization. So at the moment, these are some of the aspects I'm, I'm looking at. Thank you. I'm absolutely grateful for your erudition, for all the knowledge you shared with us during this conversation, and for everything you sacrificed and invested in bringing this very important book and volume into availability for the benefit of everyone. I'm extremely grateful for your time. Uh, I loved meeting you and talking with you. And I just wanted to convey my utmost gratitude. Thank you so very much for, for inviting me. It was a great pleasure to, to talk, to have this dialogue. Thank you. Thank you. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I am Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network and the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I have been talking to Professor Ion Hopa. He is the author of the book, The Romanian Orthodox Church and the Holocaust, published in Bloomington, Indiana, by Indiana University Press, 2017. Thank you for your time.